You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Hello, Northway Church. It's good to see you all. If you are new, welcome. As you can obviously see, I'm not Shay Sumlin, I'm not Brady Goodwin, I'm not Matt Younger, nor am I Jonathan Woolleaf. My name is Jonathan Menendez, and I get to serve here on staff as our lead gospel community's minister. And that's a very long title. It simply means that I get to lead and oversee our small groups, our gospel communities. And before we dive into today's message, I've been asked to share my story briefly. So I'm going to take about a minute or so to share my story. Uh, Very, very condensed version, okay? Just to kind of give you some context in case you and I have not met yet. So my story begins in California. West Coast is the best coast. Anyone? Yeah, maybe a few. (laughs) So I was born in California, and uh, I grew up in Guatemala for the early part of my childhood. I came back to the States when I was 11 years old. I lived in Guatemala for seven years. And so I learned Spanish as my first language. And then uh, I grew up attending church, but really my faith did not become real until the age of 18 when I was diagnosed with a chronic illness. And so I've been dealing with a chronic illness for 13 years now, give or take. And my walk with Jesus and my story with chronic illness kind of run parallel. And God has used this uh, for his glory and my good. So he got a hold of my heart when I was 18. Eventually, I started serving the Lord in the local church. Fast forward to the year 2018, I moved to the state of Oklahoma. And people back home, they were asking me, what's in Oklahoma? Are there people over there? I'm like, yeah, there are people. Um, and so I moved to Oklahoma in 2018 and uh, just to be part of a church there in the area. And that's where I met my, my beautiful wife, Christy, and uh, her biological daughter, Jubilee. And so we became a blended family. We just celebrated, Christy and I just celebrated our one-year anniversary last month. And uh, yeah, thank you. And, uh, and then here in a couple of days on Tuesday, I'm about to celebrate my one-year work anniversary here at Northway. So last year was a whirlwind. I mean, marriage, new city, new job, you name it. It was crazy. A lot of changes and transitions. You know, some of, the, some of life's most stressful events, we did it all in a month or two. We don't recommend it, okay, unless the Lord is in it. And then, even then, you still need a lot of prayer. Believe me. And so that's a little bit about me. Uh, I, I could share more, but the point of today is not me, so, but I want to give you a, just a little snapshot of who I am, where I come from. And so let's, let's uh, take a word of prayer now. Let's, let's pray real quick. Okay, so join me. Father, uh, I thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God, I thank you for this opportunity to come together as a spiritual family in this room, in this space, with AC. What a gift, Lord. What a gift. What a blessing. And so, Father, I ask that you would magnify the the name of Jesus today by the power of your Spirit. Father, I ask that you would enable me to speak and to be faithful, to open up your word, knowing that there is so much more that could be said today. But I trust you with the outcomes and the results. So I pray that your word would accomplish your divine purposes. Would you speak to us? Would you encourage our hearts? Would you, would you renew our minds? 
to speak to us individually, powerfully, personally, and then collectively as a spiritual family. And we dedicate this time to you. And we pray in your name. Amen and amen. All right, so today we're going to continue our series in the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Genesis. Genesis is the very first book in the Bible, so you should not get lost. And if you do, no shame whatsoever, okay? Just ask a friend, ask a good Samaritan next to you. He or she may direct you to the book of Genesis. And we're going to be spending our time today in chapter 10 and 11, okay? Um, And uh, before we dive in into the text, by way of reminder, the book of Genesis is broken down into two major sections, two major halves. The first section, chapters 1 through 11, talks about, uh, it's often called primeval history because it lays out the foundations of the universe and life and humanity and earth and so forth. And the second section, chapters 12 to 50, deal primarily with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and his sons, and so forth. And so today we are concluding this first half of Genesis, chapter 10 and 11. And really, this is the grand climax of this first half, the grand culmination of this first section of Genesis. And what are we going to see? Are we going to see humanity be obedient to God's original mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill and subdue the earth? At first glance, it might seem like this is the case as we look at the table of nations in chapter 10, but upon closer examination, we will see humanity's full rebellion in disobedience, as we look at the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. In our, our, our outline for today, we're going to look at the Table of Nations, the Tower of Babel, the accounts of Shem and Terah, and then lastly, we'll talk about how all of this connects with tongues of fire, as Luke would describe it in Acts chapter 2. That's our outline for today. But the main idea that I want us to walk away with today is the following, that God is sovereign over the nations. And he will accomplish his redemptive purposes despite humanity's sinfulness. That's what I want us to walk away with today. That God is indeed sovereign. And he will accomplish his redemptive purposes despite humanity's sinfulness, despite humanity's brokenness. All right, let's dig in. So Genesis chapter 10. When you have found that text, please respond to me with an amen, a hallelujah, a yeehaw, whatever, whatever you want, just to let me know that you're alive and you're with me today. All right. Amen. Awesome. So chapter 10, verse 1 through 32, before we kind of scan this chapter briefly, the main idea here is that we will see God is sovereign as he multiplies and develops the nations. Okay, now to your dismay, to your disappointment, we're not going to spend the bulk of our time identifying the exact identity of each individual and city and nation. That will take us hours. Okay, we're not going to geek out on that. Sorry to disappoint you today. But chapter 10 is often called the Table of Nations. And I want us to look at a few things briefly. Look at verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. 
And then scroll down or go down the page or the next page to verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. From, and from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So we see similar language here in these two verses. These two verses form an inclusio, a book ends of some sort. Okay? Now, look at the chapter. This chapter is clearly organized into sections. Three primarily, three main sections dealing with the sons of Noah. Each section corresponding to each of the three sons. In verses 2 to 5, what are we going to see? We're going to see the sons of Japheth, okay? The descendants of Japheth. And these descendants end up in Europe and Asia Minor and other places. In verses 6 to 20, we're going to see Ham's descendants. And these folks end up in Mesopotamia, countries like Iran, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, etc., and then lastly, we see the last section in verses 21 through 31, and we see Shem's descendants. And from this group of people, we get the Israelites. So what could we conclude by a quick helicopter view, by a quick scan at this chapter? God did indeed bless Noah and his sons. He did. He multiplied their descendants, and these sons had sons, and they became families, and these families developed into people groups and nations with distinct languages spreading across the earth over, over a period of time to various locations. So God did, did indeed bless and enable them to be fruitful, to multiply and fill the earth. One commentator put it this way, the text, chapter 10, affirms, affirms that all nations can trace their existence to the power of God. So yes, God is sovereign over the multiplication and development of the nations. I want to point out a few key words that will help us see the relationship between Genesis 10 and 11. Here are some key words. We see uh, the land of Shinar mentioned in chapter 10. We see Babel mentioned in chapter 10. We see key words like divided and spread and dispersed. These key words link up these two chapters together. And the question I have is, how did this spreading, this dispersing of the nations in chapter 10, how did that happen? Or a better question would be, why did it happen? Were the descendants of Noah simply obedient to God's original mandate to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it? Or was there something else going on? Was there something else that happened? We will find the answer in chapter 11. Chapter 11 of Genesis. We're going to camp there for a bit. We're going to read the text here in a second. But before we do, I want to mention one thing. You might be wondering, chapter 10 List the table of nations. It's not an exhaustive list. It gives us a list of names of individuals and cities and nations and people groups that were of interest to the nation of Israel. And scholars believe that there were uh, 70 descendants that are listed in this chapter. And that in Hebrew understanding meant it means completeness. Okay, so there's some, there's some intentionality there in the number of descendants listed in chapter 10. But we see a big picture overview in chapter 10. 
the nations. They have multiplied, they have developed, and they have spread out. And it says that they, are, they have multiple languages, right? Various languages. And so in, verse, in chapter 11, verse 1, we're going to see something different. That all the earth has one language. Wait a minute. Hold up. Is there a contradiction here? What's going on? What is going on? Well, to help us kind of make sense and, and, and help us harmonize these two chapters, you've got to think about Genesis 1 and 2, for example. There's a pattern there. Do you remember Genesis 1 and 2 when we looked at those two chapters some time ago in our, in our series in the book of Genesis? Chapter 1 gives us a big picture overview, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Big summary statement. And then verse 2 and on, what, is, what does it do? It gives us the details of how God went about doing that. Big picture overview, zoomed in account. In Genesis chapter 2, we see a zoomed in account on the creation of mankind. Genesis 1, God created mankind in his image. Genesis 2, how did he go about doing that? So we see a similar pattern here in chapter 10 and 11. Big picture overview in chapter 10. In chapter 11, zoomed in account. How and why did this spreading take place? So I hope that's helpful for us to keep in mind as we look at this chapter. Okay, chapter 11, verse 1. You ready? Now, the whole earth had how many languages? One language. So we're going, we're going back in time to, to that moment when all of the earth had one language. Okay? So chronologically speaking, chapter 11 comes before. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Verse 2. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Verse 4. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed, keyword, over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5 is key. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the, the children or the sons of man had built. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Verse 7, Come, let us go down in their confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8 and verse 9, The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, verse 9, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, is a literary work of art. It's a chiasm. And that means it follows a particular pattern, a particular structure, repetition to make a point across. 
And so this chiasm goes like this. Verse 1 corresponds with verse 9. Verse 2 with verse 8. Verse 3 with verse 7. Verse 4 with verse 6. And verse 5 is right there in the middle. Right there in the middle. You do not need to be a Hebrew scholar, okay? Good news. You do not need to be a Hebrew scholar to see the great irony in the text, in the play on words. So let's look at this closer, okay? Verses 1 and 2, we see the setting. We are introduced to the main characters here in the location. What does it say? The whole earth had one language and the same words, the same vocabulary, Picture this moment in history. No need for Google Translate, which gets translation wrong most of the time anyway. Uh, No need for vocab flashcards. No need for Quizlet. You teachers know what I'm talking about. Okay, there was a time in which the people had one language. Same words, same vocabulary. In verse 2, the author is alluding us are alluding to something important. Something is up. Something is happening here when the author mentions east. The text says that they were migrating to the east, from the east, in the east, wherever it may be. This theme of east is important for us to note. This is not the first time we see this in the book of Genesis. Do you remember chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God? What did God do? He expelled them from the garden. He expelled them from his presence. And they went east. God placed a cherubim, a, a spiritual being, at the east entrance to the garden to guard it. So that Adam and Eve will not be able to enter that. And so you will see the, you see the people, Adam and Eve, expel from God's presence and going east. And these two ideas of walking away from God's presence, excuse me, and going east, these two ideas come together with Cain in chapter 4, verse 16. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it for us. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. Where? East of Eden. So you have these two ideas coming together, going further and further away from God's presence and going east. Now, my family and I just moved east. What could that mean? Ta-ta-ta. Nah, we're in the new covenant. Shout out to Jesus. So it's all good. But the author is alluding to the fact that something is up here by mentioning east. Something is up. The people are going further and further away from God's presence. Verse 3 and 4, we see humanity's predicament. And we see humanity's solution. Verse 3, let's let's take a look at it one more time. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. In verse 4, it says, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There's something very important in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, that I want us to see. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Humanity at this time had a fear, had a concern of being spread out and being, and being dispersed, which, by the way, was part of God's plan. 
to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And here we see humanity, they don't want to do that. They want to stay put instead of going out and being spread out. They They have a real fear, a real concern. So what do they do? They come up with a plan. There's an invitation, a call, collective call for humanity to come together around a unified purpose. First, to build bricks, to build bricks out of mud, to put them in the hot, scorching sun and bake them. And we, we definitely know what the hot, scorching sun is like here in Texas, right? Yeah. So the people come together, they're building bricks. The author makes a note that they didn't have stones, so they had bricks for stone bitumen or tar instead of mortar, okay? This is asphalt kind of like material that they use. And so we see that humanity is innovating. We see humanity's ingenuity. They're creating a new technology, the brick. And what is their purpose? They want to build a city. They want to build a tower with its top in the heavens. To what? To make a name for themselves. To make a name for themselves. And so here we see humanity coming together around a unified purpose to make a name for themselves. Does it sound like they want to be obedient to God's word and be fruitful and multiply and spread? No, it does not. They're building a city. They're building a tower. And guess what? This is a man-made attempt of finding security. That's what it really is. They fear something Namely, being spread out and dispersed. So what did it come up with? A man-made attempt of finding security. And what did they want to build? They want to build a city, a tower. Let's talk about this tower for a second. Cultural background for a little bit. So Mesopotamia is mostly flat, okay? And so mountains were often, they often served a purpose. The people wanted to go higher because there was a belief that the gods dwelt higher, right? So they often use mountains. And on the top of mountains, they had shrines and places of worship. And so the people here are building a tower. Most likely, this is a a ziggurat, okay, with a Z, not a cigarette, okay, a ziggurat with a Z. And this was kind of like a pyramid-like tower that just kept going up and up and up. And up on the top was the temple, the shrine, And so they're building this to make a name for themselves. And see, here we see humanity's collective rebellion. Some commentators would call this collective apostasy. And what was their solution? Let's make a city. Let's build a tower. Let's spread our fame. Let's spread our renown. So what was the sin of the people? Was it pride? Was it disobedience to God's will? Yes. Pride and disobedience to God's will. What about us, family? What about us? Are we immune to this selfish, prideful impulse to seek our own glory, our own renown? How many times have we sought our own glory, our own renown? Intentionally or unintentionally? If we're honest, too many times to count, right? What about rebelling against God's will? I know that's strong language, right? In what ways have we been selfishly trying to make a name for ourselves? What what about our man-made attempts of finding security? If only blank, then 
blank. Have you heard that expression before? If only I had a better job. If only I had a better career. If only I would have gone to a better school. If only I had a spouse. If only I was single. If only I had a house. If only I had a car. You name it. These are man-made attempts at finding security and contentment and happiness and the good life. Not that those things are bad in, uh, in and of themselves, right? but the problem is when we begin to place our security in those things. So the people wanted to build something. They wanted to fix their fear being spread out. And these were man-made attempts of finding security. So how do we make a name for ourselves here in Dallas? Job titles, money, reputation, social media, new technologies. Again, these things are not bad. But are we placing our trust in these things? Are we placing our security in these things? Are these things going to satisfy us, fulfill us? Are these things... Are we using these things to make a name for ourselves? We're not immune, dear family. We are not immune. We're the same. But God, but thanks be to God because he intervenes. He intervenes. And that's, this is exactly what he does in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men have built. There's great irony here. Don't miss it. The people wanted to go up. To the heavens, they're building this city, this tower. God had to come down. They're like, what are, what are these people up to? A little Legos over here? The Lord, the true living God, came down to see what they were up to. So God shows up. He comes to the scene. To the, scene. the children of men wanted to go up. God came down. The true living God came down. In verse 6 and 7, we see God's evaluation and God's response. Verse 6, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people meaning they're unified, a collective people. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose will, what does it say? Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord intervenes. The Father intervenes. Yes, he does. And he shows mercy through judgment. He shows mercy through judgment. Do you remember chapter 3 of Genesis? Just like when Adam and Eve sinned by disobeying God's word and taking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, and before they could take of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever in a spiritually dead condition, God intervened. Mercy through judgment. We see the same situation here in the Tower of Babel. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So God knows that there is a real danger when we remain on the path of pride and disobedience. He knows that very well. So he intervenes. How many times has the Lord shown, shown you and me mercy? How many times has the Lord show, showed you mercy upon mercy upon mercy? How many times has he stopped us in our tracks? And what often seems like he's just withholding good things from us, in hindsight we see, oh no, the Lord's providence was all over it. God was very kind to spare me from that one. I don't know about you, but in my own life, there have been so many times in which I have sought one thing or another, this opportunity, this relationship, this or that. 
And I thought that these things would bring me satisfaction and fulfillment and contentment and security. And now I see the Lord's mercy all over it. Now I see the Lord's providence all over it. Where would we be apart from the Lord's mercy? All the more confused and lost, right? Where will we be apart from the Lord's mercy? So he intervenes. He intervenes. And in verse 7, in contrast to humanity's call to come together, build a city, build a tower, we see a, a divine invitation, quote unquote. Come, let us confuse their language. Before the people had the same vocabulary, now as a result of God's intervention, they will not be able to understand each other's speech. And as a result, their plans were frustrated because of linguistic barriers. I know what that is like. I know what, what it's like to have to experience frustration as a result of linguistic barriers. I moved from Guatemala to back to California when I was 11 years old and did not speak a single word of English. And I experienced culture shock. And I tried to assimilate into the American culture. I'm like, what is this American thing y'all have? <laughs> and I eventually learned the language by God's grace. But I know what it's like to experience frustration as a result of linguistic barriers. It's real, yes. And here God confuses their language and their plans were frustrated. They were no longer able to finish their construction project. In verse 8, we see a summary. Verse 9, we see a concluding statement. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they left off building the city. In verse 9, therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And so God intervenes. In verse 8 and 9, what happens? Humanity's worst fear comes true. They fear being spread out. They fear being dispersed. And this is exactly what happened. God scatters them. God spreads them out. Where to? Across the whole earth. And so as a result, they stop building the city. What a disappointment that, that must have been. At first, they wanted to make a name for themselves. And here they are with their plans being frustrated. Verse 9 is the concluding statement. The Lord confused their language. They stopped building the city. And they wanted a name for themselves. Well, they got a name. Babel. Yes. Babel sounds like the Hebrew word balau, which means to confuse. So there's great irony here. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Well, they got a name, Babel, because there the Lord confused their language. And what they wanted to do, they wanted to build a monument to their praise and glory. This ended up becoming a monument to God's judgment over their sin and their pride. So the Lord scatters them. And we finish this story, the Tower of Babel, and it seems like humanity is just going downward, right? Going down in a downward, in a downward spiral, going just Sin after sin, brokenness after brokenness, disobeying God, pursuing their own glory. So we see that humanity, we see humanity's full rebellion on display. And so we end this section and you're, you might be wondering, where is the hope in here? Right? Well, chapter 11 does not finish. It doesn't finish there. It picks it up. Verse 10, the author picks up Shem's line from chapter 10, but he zooms in a little bit more. 
And so we see the account of Shem. Why Shem? Well, if you recall, last Sunday's sermon, which Brady preached, Noah's oracle in chapter 9, right? Noah invokes God's blessing over Shem and that Japheth would be living in Shem's tents. In other words, like experiencing the blessings of Shem. And, see, and here we see the author pick up Shem's line. Why? Because God will continue his chosen line through Shem. And the irony here is that the people wanted to make a name for themselves. They did get the name, the name that they did not want. And here we see God choose a name, Shem. Shem in Hebrew means name. Isn't that crazy? God chooses a name. God chooses Shem through whom his chosen line continues. And so the people wanted a name for themselves. Man-made attempts of finding security failed. God intervenes. He continues his plan by choosing Shem. And from Shem, we get Terah. In verse 26, a new Toledo, a new section begins as the account of Terah. Do you remember how we mentioned earlier that there were 70 descendants listed in chapter 10, uh, meaning completeness? Well, Terah was 70 years old when he had a baby named Abram, okay? No coincidence there whatsoever. At the quote-unquote complete time, Abram was born. And God's promise to Abraham, spoiler alert, his name gets changed, and we will see this in the second section of Genesis. God made a promise to Abraham to make him great, to make him a great nation, to make his name great, to bless him and to bless the families of the earth through Abraham. Isn't that amazing? And then from Abraham, we get Israel. And Israel, by the way, was called to be a lie to the nations. A lie to the nations. And then from Israel, we get Jesus, the seed of Abraham, through whom God would bless the nations. Jesus, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Jesus, humble, lowly, and gentle of heart. Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death and even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, says Paul in Philippians 2, and has given Jesus a name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee would bow down and say that Jesus is Lord of all. Through Jesus now, repentance through, through Jesus, we have forgiveness of our sins. When we repent of our sins, we trust him. In his finished work on the cross and resurrection. And through Jesus, now we get access to God. We no longer have to make up, make ways for us to go up to God and to make, a, make our way to heaven. God came down to us yet again in the person and work of Jesus. So I don't know where you're at today. If you follow Jesus, praise God. Keep following him. If you're not following Jesus, maybe today is the day of salvation for you to trust him, to turn away from your sin, to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And from Jesus, we get the church. And I want to conclude by looking at this last section here, tongues of fire. You're like, what in the world? Where did that come from? Acts chapter 2. We're going to fast forward. We're not going to look at the text for the sake of time. But the church, 
the church is gathered in Jerusalem. This is after Jesus ascends to heaven, right? Holy Spirit has come down. And this event is a contrasting event with the Tower of Babel. The people wanted to go up. They were spread out. They were confused. And in Pentecost, Acts 2, the nations are gathered, the Jewish nations under heaven were gathered in Jerusalem. These Jewish nations spoke other languages and they were there to celebrate Pentecost. And Holy Spirit comes in power and enables his church to speak tongues. Luke would describe this scenario like a, like that, like, like a mighty rushing wind. A sound came and filled the room and Holy Spirit descended in power and enabled his people to speak tongues. In other words, languages in this scenario. And the people of God began to proclaim the truth of God and the wonders of God in multiple and various languages. And so what we do see here in Acts 2 is not a reversal of Babel where we go back in time and we just, we go back to one language. We don't see that, but we do see God's redemption over languages. He uses languages for his purposes. Languages are a tool in his hand that now he uses for his glory, his renown, his fame. And so if you speak other languages, praise be to God. Use them for the glory of God. And if you don't speak other languages and just English, great. Still praise and glorify God through the language that you know. So God redeems the languages in Acts 2. And let me tell you, languages are here to stay. Today's call of worship came from Revelation 7. When the people of God, the multi-ethnic people of God, the multilingual people of God, the multicultural people of God will come together around the throne and worship King Jesus forever in the new heaven and the new earth. I can't wait for that moment. Believe me. In the meantime, Let's bring glory to Jesus. Let's use our languages for his renown. So I want to land a plane here and just talk about three things. As, as we kind of wrap our heads around these texts and these truths, and by just way of application, I want to mention three things real quick. Number one, let's be aware of the destructive power of pride. And let's pursue humility. Let's be aware of the destructive power of pride and let's pursue humility. Over and over again, the scriptures say that God opposes the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. And the Tower of Babel is a case in point. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So let us then, church, humble ourselves, not in our own strength, but in the strength that God provides through his spirit. So let's, let's be aware of the destructive power of pride and pursue humility. Second, let's flee selfish ambition and serve others with our gifts and our talents and our time and our possessions. Let us flee selfish ambition and serve others. Paul would say this in Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing in English, in Spanish, in Greek means nothing, okay? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Man, that's hard, isn't it? 
especially when we do it in our own strength, in our own willpower. We can't fabricate this, family. We need the Spirit of God to empower us. Humility is part of the fruit of the Spirit, right? So let's ask Him to empower us to serve others and to put down and to put away selfish ambition. Third and finally, let's not boast about our plans but live surrender to God's will. Plans are not bad or evil, right? But James will remind us to be careful about bragging, about boasting about our, of our plans. Like if we're going to go into this town and that town and make this profit and do that thing, James reminds us, hey, be careful. Don't boast. Don't brag about this. Say, if the Lord wills, you will do such a thing. And that really is hinting at this, at this heart posture of humility and open hands. Yes, we can make our plans. But remember, we make our plans, but God establishes our steps. So let's not boast about our plans and all that we can do, but live surrender to God's will. And let's, let's have our plans, but with open hands. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. There is so much more that we can talk about. We just scratched the surface. But I thank you for your word. It is inspired. It is breathed out by you. It is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. God, I thank you for my church family. I pray for us all that you would enable us, empower us through your spirits, to yes, make a name, make, bring glory to your name and not pursue our own glory. Lord, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of the ways in which we have rebelled against you. We have sought to pursue our own glory. Reveal those areas of our heart that we need to repent of today. And let us surrender it all to you. And let us trust you. Let us go to Jesus. So strengthen us, empower us, comfort us, and show us, God, what it is that you want, what it is that you have for us as we move forward one day at a time and strive to be faithful in your strength and your grace. So we thank you for this time and your word. We pray in your name. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.